Be the informed patient with Upstate Medical University's podcast on health, science, and medicine. This is your host, Amber Smith. What can employers do to help curtail opioid use disorders among workers? Let's explore this topic with Jeanette Zeckler. She's the Director of Preventive Services for Upstate's Occupational Health Clinical Center, and she was one of the editors of a special issue of the Journal of Environmental and Occupational Health Policy devoted to opioids and the workplace. Nice to see you again, Dr. Zeckler. Hi, thanks for having me. The National Institute on Drug Abuse reported nearly 50,000 people in the U.S. died from opioid-involved overdoses in 2019, and I've read of more than 100,000 overdose deaths between April 2020 and April 21. And I also know there's concern about a growing number of people who die from opioids laced with fentanyl. So what is the connection to the workplace? Well, we're really glad to think this through because you know, the opioid misuse and overdose problem is serious, and it's not isolated to the home environment or community environment. We see that the workplace has a major role that's even been recognized by the Surgeon General Vivek Murphy as he's looking into mental health. He's looking into a lot of these kinds of issues and identifying the workplace as a source of health problems or a source of health promotion. And so the workplace is a super important place to think about this. And so what we see here in the clinic, and by the way, I just want to mention that the clinic here in Syracuse is part of a network of clinics statewide that is designed to fill in a gap in healthcare services for workers who end up needing to seek workers' compensation for how they are paying for their work-related injuries and illnesses. So who we see in our clinic are people for whom the workplace has become uh, some kind of exposure has happened in the workplace, and then uh, they end up being patients here. So what we uh, think about in terms of injuries, in terms of work-related stress, those are the risk factors that um, lead to opioid use. So you can imagine you have uh, work that causes you to have some kind of injury or chronic pain. You, you get treated for that. You begin to take pain medication to address that. Perhaps you're prescribed opioids, narcotics, um, and those consequences can lead one to addiction. Those risk factors then in the workplace are things like unsafe jobs that lead to accidents in the workplace that have injuries, so slips, trips, falls, uh, anything like that, or heavy workloads, that will lead a person to um, have pain and then seek out a way to ameliorate their pain, which is a natural response, right? So uh, another set of risk factors that we find that connect work to opioids is around job stress, um, job insecurity, and the potential for job loss. All of those factors um, can also be happening at the same time. I'd like to say a little bit more about job stress, if I might, at this moment, because job-related stress sounds like a vague idea. It sounds like, oh, the work is stressful. Well, isn't work stressful? I mean, how much is too much? So we've been in our field of, of occupational health have been studying work-related stress for quite a long time. And we have created definitions whereby people end up having health effects. That definition that's most commonly used and, and most substantiated in the literature is around high demands, low control, and the lack of support on the job. When you have those three factors in place, 
the job more likely can produce health effects, including cardiovascular disease, a reduced immune function, and then this potential for having injuries because you're stressed, um, there's a greater chance for injury in the workplace. Well, let me ask you, because you, you just yeah. described jobs that are demanding, but that a worker wouldn't have much control over. That's a lot of jobs, a, a yeah. wide range of types of jobs, too. It really is. It's found in every type of industry and occupation. And of course, um, really right before the pandemic, we were hot on the opioid misuse and overdose issue. It was super important. It was center focused because of these large numbers you describe of deaths. And, you know, the pandemic has only complicated the stressors in the workplace. In many cases, we see that the job stress that I describe is uniquely um, peaked around healthcare workers in the pandemic, around others that are exposed, these so-called essential workers. Now we've described workers as essential. We knew they were essential before, but it became even more heightened. They can't quit their job. They can't go home and work from home. They work in the public. So these demands and loss of control and the danger of the possibility of contracting COVID have added to the stressors. Um, we think of teachers a lot in this specific circumstance, um, and they're on their feet a lot, so they end up with pain, physical pain too, and the possibility of injury around teachers can center on, you know, um, worried about the COVID exposure, possibly having to move large books or furniture around, even though maybe they're not supposed to, they're supposed to call maintenance, but they're in a hurry and they need to do this right now. They end up uh, using their bodies in ways that can bring um, injury. So every occupation I can highlight in this journal that I was able to um, participate in, we even looked at fishermen in certain villages and how they had a four times more likely chance of misusing opioids and than anyone else in their villages, that occupation, right? So we focused in on that specific occupation for what is that story? And I could tell you that every occupation in different industries could be thought about for what is their connection. It's not going to be all the same every time. Each occupation has its unique stressors, the unique opportunities for injuries, and the unique ways in which opioids become a part of that work-related health picture. Let me ask you a workers' comp question. If someone is prescribed opioids after an on-the-job injury and then they develop an addiction, is that addiction treatment going to be covered by workers' comp? So that is the gr a great question that I put to our social worker here, and I also put to a workers' comp attorney that participates on our board as well. And I got two different answers, and that's not really surprising. And that's because it's difficult to get many work-related cases through the comp system. We have to advocate for our patients. We have to make a case for the causality of their illness. Their illness has to be proven to be work-related. So when I spoke with the comp attorney who has experience in this, um, he was saying that if you can draw the exact causal chain, which would mean like suppose your knee was injured at work and maybe there was a bunch of delays and you weren't able to get it taken care of very quickly, then you might be prescribed uh, opioids, then maybe you become addicted. If that all can be chained back to the knee injury in a causal direct, you know, direct causal link, then workers' comp is covering. But that, that's like 
something you've got to accomplish. Your doctor and your attorney have to accomplish creating the case. Then our social worker felt that the more common path for people to to get the addiction treatment that they need will be that patient will come in, um, develops uh, opioid addiction, and then we will refer to pain management. And from the pain management, which workers comp will cover, they can take uh, it from there in terms of getting addiction services uh, for the patient. So it looks to me like it's not always clear, you know, it's not always a clear pathway in the workers comp system, but that that making that case is important. In other words, someone will come in and argue, well, is this really work related? You were predisposed to addiction for some other reason. Um, very often workers are considered, you know, they have to prove a lot of times um, above and beyond what you would think in order to claim, make their claims stick. So those, those claims have to be fought for. This is Upstate's The Informed Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Jeanette Seckler from Upstate's Occupational Health Clinical Center. Our topic is opioid use disorder in the workplace. Can you give me an overview of workplace policies on employee opioid use? So the main problem is a lot of workplaces just don't have a special separate policy on this. They haven't been thinking about it. They have a workplace culture, whatever it is. And this would be considered part of their employee assistance program. And most places have those. And so what we find is uh, that's a good thing that those are in place and various um, employers approach this differently. But where the strength comes, where we could strengthen those employee assisted assistance programs and create uh, stronger policies um, that would be a key feature of improving the opioid misuse and overdose problem, right? So I'd like to describe what some have found to be the most important factors in strengthening what employers can do. There is a significant stigma that when people misuse or overdose on opioids, it's, a, it's considered a moral failure. And when we move away from that into more of a biomedical approach where we say, this is something that needs treatment, you can get better, it's not a personal moral failure to have become addicted to these drugs. They need to be not prescribed as frequently, right? We need to look at that as an upstream way of preventing it. But the, the employer programs that focus on opening these difficult conversations being a place of where you can go in and admit that you've got this problem and you need help with it without feeling like you're gonna lose your job or feeling like you are some kind of second-class uh, worker now, um, that's really important. And so the worker training programs that people have put in place that actually make a difference, that aren't just something that people check off a box, oh good, we did our drug training or opioid training, when it matters, when it makes a difference, people have gone in and raised a deeper awareness and try to change a culture within the workplace to find it an acceptable and even a responsible thing to seek the treatment that you need. And so that kind of employer's responsibility to create a safe and healthy workplace would include a, this kind of cultural shift. Uh, it's super important because, you know, people will continue to try to work through pain and continue to try to work through pain by using medications. And so when they do that, they're trying to protect their jobs. 
and very often, you know, it's part of the workplace culture to support people not working sick, not working in pain, and let them go out and get the healing that they need as opposed to having to press through all the time. Employers should be um, promoting those kind of shifts through awareness in their programming. Let me ask you, are there legal protections for someone to keep their job if they become addicted to opioids? Yeah, I mean, when you have a work-related illness or injury, and this is established as a work-related problem, seeking treatment and being treated should be thought of like any other any other illness or injury, right? There should be and are legal protections um, for you. But I think what happens, and I think this is what's less often spoken about, is that even if there are legal rights and protections, um, these are harder to achieve than at first glance. I mean, you have to know how to use your right and your legal protection. You have to be kind of savvy about it because there will be um, ways in which somehow you end up being the one who gets on the losing end of the stick anyway, even though the legal protections are there. And so we want to make sure people know how to seek treatment and be supported in that seeking of treatment when they run into this problem so that we can prevent their their death or overdose or chronic drug um, addiction. Do you know, is there a difference between an addiction to a prescription drug versus an addiction to an illegal drug? That nuance, I think I'm not 100% familiar with, but I can say that it's a common pathway that people will seek after they're addicted to opioids, they end up seeking the street versions. It may be easier to get in their world. It may be cheaper to get. And so there should not be a big distinction between those two um, because treating the addiction, I mean, the body doesn't know the difference, you know, unless of course the street drugs are not as controlled, right? So they're not as safe. But the addiction is the focus of what needs treatment. So there really shouldn't be, again, increased stigma against people for seeking drugs in that way. Now, one of the articles in the journal advocates primary prevention in the workplace. What is that and how would it work? Primary prevention, you know, from a public health perspective, is to always look upstream to find out where can we cut this off at the source rather than putting a band-aid on things and when it's late in the game we want to try to cut things off so there's a good example in the journal of a company that tried to put everything together to do to enact primary prevention and one of their efforts was around stopping this over prescribing of opioids in the first place so the company decided to really think about the medical management of their workers, how many were being prescribed these and try to reduce that and find other methods for um, addressing pain. And I think um, when we look at primary prevention, that's a good place to cut it off, cut off so much prescribing. Another um, really important point, which I've been uh, driving toward in this discussion so far is the training and the awareness has to be um, very uh, sensitive. It can't be just uh, rote. We have to develop customized training that raises awareness in the workplace, that reduces stigma, and makes folks um, very aware that it's not a moral failure, that it's something that cuts across all 
socioeconomic levels. We're all interested in how to, to stop this. I mean, some of the more effective programs really have top-down buy-in. And very often, sadly, that happens because a CEO or someone in a powerful position's family has been affected by the, the addiction and possibly even death. And that stimulates the top-down approach to really support um, continuous awareness raising among all the workers and you know, not letting it just drop. So an ongoing look. Some of the better education efforts have centered on having workers who've been through it themselves come back to talk to other workers about how to avoid these traps. And getting those workers involved has been um, significant because there's nothing like a person who's been through it themselves to speak to it rather than an educator coming in and just giving lots of facts and figures. And unions are often good at this, um, bringing out the uncomfortable conversations, sitting in focus groups or small groups and letting people's hair down a bit and saying, hey, we've got a problem on our hands. Let's admit it. Let's man up, if you will, and say we're going to face this rather than keep it, keep it stigmatized and quiet. And so people have had success in doing that by bringing in key workers who've been through the, the, the struggle and succeeded and gotten better. So that way it brings hope into those programs. So those would be the kinds of programs and the kinds of efforts, you know, that we would look for for primary prevention to prevent people from ever, ever getting into this problem in the first place. And when you mention, um, you know, prescribers, if you're really targeting workers, you're having to teach workers to ask questions of their prescriber. If they're facing a surgery, say, you know, maybe they need to ask the surgeon or the team about pain control that maybe doesn't involve opioids or maybe a short course. Right. They need to understand the, the danger of becoming addicted and how to avoid that. But also when, one thing when we mention that is the, the responsible medical prescription prescribing practices really are important because we don't also at the same time want to see workers who need to address their pain and chronic pain going undertreated. You know, I mean, that people are so afraid to even touch any kind of pain medication. We want to make sure they have the appropriate and supervised use of because they really do need to alleviate their pain. And I think too, um, getting back to the primary prevention, when we talk about work-related stress and also injury prevention, those are two key areas that need serious attention. I mean, one of the articles brought out in the journal brought out an entire set of manager practices that lead people to be stressed at work. And this is prior to the pandemic, but they might as well have been describing you know, managerial practices in the pandemic where people are having thin staffing and low pay and people are devalued at times. And there's a whole, you know, a long list here of when low morale and burnout and turnover, and when managers emphasize standard practices and don't make allowances for different styles uh, and that basically can give control back to the worker for how they're gonna do their work. Those things really need attention there's a lot of workplace incivility and harassment and bullying that leads people to feel despair and to sense that um, they're not respected or cared about. And uh, so those kind of manager attention to the management level of how things are conducted in a workplace can go a long way to preventing people from having 
um, the need to reach toward drugs uh, to solve, to self-medicate their stressors. What does addiction recovery look like from an employer's point of view? If someone is in recovery, does that affect their job? One thing that we have to think about with workplaces that support recovery programs, you know, we have to think about that a one-size-fits-all approach is not going to be useful. So a very good workplace recovery program would allow for a wider variety of possibilities for recovery. Um, in, a, in, the, in the best of all possible worlds, we'd be reducing the stigma. We would have a person able to go out to get the treatment they need if they need to go out of work for their, their substance abuse treatment, addiction treatment. And then, you know, we're going to have to have qualified occupational health care providers that would know how to make these case-by-case -case determinations. We'd need to have um, education, support, resources, and stigma reduction kind of all working together to create the kind of recovery that returns a person to their work free of addiction to substances and ready to be returned in a full, full way. And that's gonna look different depending on occupation and industry. And I think when we see this in the clinic, you know, we're able to have the sensitivities around when a person has an occupational illness or injury, we know kind of what they're going through. We can provide the kind of support that they need. Many times um, people are going through this without that sort of nuanced healthcare provider um, in front of them, you know, they don't have the extra special thought about work-related health. So that's, that's the main thing about what a good recovery would look like. Person's able to go out without stigma. People aren't all allowed to gossip about them and have a big problem. They don't lose their job over it. They don't get demoted and they are able to go out just as though uh, they had cancer or they had any other kind of injury or surgery where they needed to go out to be, um, treated in the same vein. I know that this is important in white collar, so-called white collar jobs, as well as in skilled labor or unskilled labor. I mean, it crosses a path across all sorts of occupations, but it is gonna look different depending on if you have an office job or a factory job or whether you're you know, out in the field. So it's gotta be challenging to come up with policies that will apply across the board to everyone. Agreed. I mean, the story of this is that the substance abuse disorder is crossing all boundaries. So we're seeing it, you think of it as a white collar, very often maybe in movies we see it that way, um, but really we're seeing um, this opioid problem go across just every strata that we can think of. And I think that's why it gets attention that it deserves um, because we do see it not only affecting certain types of workers but but everywhere and you can see that people are using substances to perform their job many times they're using substances to cope with their job or they're using substances after a work-related injury um, it impacts their work sometimes they have a kind of job like bus drivers or firefighters pilots it, I mean, it's a disaster. It's a disastrous for them to be on some kind of substance. It, it impacts the way their their job works and how productive they can be. If they're intoxicated at work, it's a lot more of a big deal, right? And then, you know, people have to have the access to medical treatment. 
in order to um, get access. A lot of times, a lot of people aren't ready for that, that shift. They need to stop using. They may not be fully ready to do that. Sometimes they don't have the coverage. Their job does not afford them the coverage. So in a third of the cases, when they in interviewed people um, in a statewide New York State interview, 32% of people did not feel they could afford the cost of the treatments, uh, didn't have enough health coverage to cover an addiction treatment. 21% didn't even know where to get treatment. And people felt that 17% felt it would have a negative effect on their job. People even felt, 15% felt that it would cause their neighbors and community to have a negative opinion on the, of them if they got treatment. So there's a lot of barriers to people getting the treatment. And so we have to work on whatever we can do to um, reduce those, those barriers. And the treatment you mentioned, does that include mental health care? Because I know that's part of this. Certainly. I mean, I think addiction recovery is about, you know, getting off of the substance that you're dependent on, but thinking about what led to the dependence in the first place um, will look at mental health. And that's, of course, its own ball of wax for stigma. But I'd like to point out that many workers have short periods of strain where their mental health is affected, and it's not thought of in, as a lifelong uh, mental health condition necessarily. It's, it's very often that they are going through a struggle. They need the mental health care to get through that, but it's not as though that indicates they're going to have a lifelong uh, battle with mental illness, you know, serious mental illness. So very often we will see that a short course of therapy and counseling really does get people through the tough spots for how did they get addicted, the, the powerful physical addiction on the drug may not have as much to do with a serious mental illness as it has to do with, you know, getting through a tough period. If you could speak directly to any bosses or managers that may be listening, what would you tell them that they could do? What concrete steps could they take to make their workplace better in terms of reducing opioid addictions? You know, the first thing they can do is to develop a policy to face it, to face that every, every workplace in this country might have an exposure to opioids, right? Every, every workforce can have the problem of drug misuse and overdose. It can happen to you, believe that, and decide to have a policy. And in that policy, you would have this customized, thoughtful approach to the education and awareness raising that you would be doing among your, your workers. There's a lot of good information at the NIEHS website. The clinic here, we're happy to provide more resources for developing such programs that would be customized according to the workers you have in front of you, thinking through their real problems. One of the best ways to conduct education is to bring workers together, uh, either in Zoom or in a room, however you can do it with your COVID protocols, and, and allow them to speak to the issue and hear what they have to say and find out how to customize the education uh, piece that you're planning to provide for your workplace. And then, you know, support the workers through an EAP program that is nuanced enough to understand this particular problem among a number of other problems that EAP programs should be able to handle, such as alcoholism or tobacco 
you want to have smoking cessation through EAP. You want to have a number of things that, that really matter to people's health. But this one um, should be available and strengthened through the EAP programs that you probably already have in your workplace. When people have addressed it, they report being so relieved that finally the elephant in the room was was opened up and that it didn't have to be shrouded in this sort of shame that people experience. And people, um, you know, unions have had really profound culture shifts. And so I think that every employer should seek to have that kind of culture shift go on in their place of employment. So folks can get the help they need without it being such a, an area of darkness and shame. Thank you. My guest has been Jeanette Zeckler. She's the Director of Preventive Services for Upstate's Occupational Health Clinical Center, and she helped edit a special issue of the Journal of Environmental and Occupational Health Policy devoted to opioids in the workplace. The Informed Patient is a podcast covering health, science, and medicine brought to you by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. This is your host, Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.